You're listening to Tending Bar. I'm Todd Harris. Thanks for listening. This podcast is the audio version of a video episode. To watch the video, check out tendingbar.org. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tending Barcast. Hi, thank you for joining us for Tending Bar. My name is Todd Harris. And in this episode, we'll be talking about some serious things and some really good news. I want to start by a little show and tell. This is my trusty copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's really a a prized and cherished item in our household because it's signed by Harper Lee. It's an autographed copy to Todd and Angie. Best wishes, Harper Lee. It It was a wedding gift when we got married. Uh, back when we lived in Alabama, and friends of ours who owned a bookstore uh, asked her to sign that for us. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is one of the most widely read books in the English language. Children across the United States, of course, read it in middle school or high school. I had the good fortune to visit Monroeville, home to Harper Lee, uh, just a few years ago for a conference where uh, executives from China were visiting Alabama to consider investment there, and they all descended on the George Wallace Community College there in, in Monroeville. And uh, I learned from them that To Kill a Mockingbird was required reading for every school child learning English in China, and that it was, in fact, in China, the most widely read English book. Really a remarkable piece of literature, a Pulitzer Prize winner. And it tells the story, an important story, of an attorney with integrity, Atticus Finch, standing up for a defendant and protecting someone whose defense was unpopular, but turned out to be innocent. Really important story set in the 1930s in a fictional town in Alabama, much like Monroeville. And it seems like such a thing of the past. But uh, as we've all been reminded recently, it's not, not such a distant past. You may have seen the movie Just Mercy, which has uh, just recently been in theaters. I recommend it. It's a wonderful movie. It tells the real-life story of Brian Stevenson, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery. But in particular, the Just Mercy book and and the movie based on the book tell the story of Brian's defense of an innocent man who had grown up, you guessed it, in Monroeville, Alabama, and had been wrongfully convicted and had spent years in prison not too long ago. What shocks me about that story, told by Brian Stevenson in the movie, is that I lived in Alabama at the time the man was convicted, and it was, um, you know, uh, and, and at the time of the appeals, and at the time he was released from prison. And what's amazing about it to me was I don't remember a thing about it. I don't remember it being in the news or a big issue. Such an important thing as finding and achieving justice for someone wrongfully convicted didn't even register on the news. Well, let's not let that happen. Those kinds of events are important. And today, we're going to celebrate uh, a victory. We're going to celebrate something that happened uh, just a few days ago, actually. Uh, The story of, of a wrongfully convicted man released from prison. And as you know, on Tending Bar, we are, we are celebrating sort of the higher spirit of the legal profession and hearing the stories of lawyers who have a, 
have a sort of calling to the cause of justice. And today we're going to do that by talking with my friend and, and partner, Mark Schammel. Um, and he'll get to tell us his story, this true life story that we can all celebrate. So right now I'd like to introduce you to Mark and, um, and say hello. Mark, you're on the air. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Todd. Yeah. So um, listen, I'm very excited to hear about these recent developments, but let's take just a minute to hear um, a little bit about you and your practice to set the stage for, for this recent story. You know, just tell us a little bit about, um, about how you came to be a lawyer in the first place. Why, why did you become a lawyer? Um, probably because I didn't have really a lot of other discernible job skills. I'm terrible at math. Uh, I was never going to make it as a doctor. Um, you know, I went to law school straight from college. Uh, first lawyer in my family uh, anywhere that we can tell uh, in any of the families in any direction. Um, and candidly, I went to law school having been an intern at the U.S. Attorney's Office when I was in college for the homicide division in Washington, D.C., and really thought that's what my calling was going to be. I was going to get into criminal law, and I was going to do it on the prosecution side. Um, I was going to maybe I got an offer with the FBI out of law school and a couple of um, pretty well-known uh, prosecutor's offices around the country. I was going to be a prosecutor. Um, unfortunately, I just had a lot of student loans, and I couldn't afford prosecutor starting salary. And so I uh, hooked on with a small um, defense shop, little boutique, and thought, well, I'll do this for a little while and, and figure out sort of where we are. And here I am 22 years later. I'm a career criminal defense lawyer. Um, so that, that's, that's maybe not an uh, uncommon story that uh, folks who come out of law school today, and they have a lot of debt, and so they, instead of going to, to work in a, as a public official, go into private practice, but uh, you're an illustration of how that is not, that doesn't mean that you stop serving the public interest and the public good. Um, as, a, as a defense attorney, uh, you've defended all kinds of, of defendants, but you've sort of developed a specialty in, uh, in defending uh, law enforcement officials. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I, I have uh, I've had a lot of cases representing um, law enforcement officers, both federal and state. Um, I've done it sort of around the country and even outside the country. Um, I had a pretty well-known uh, murder case. I represented a federal agent about, uh, gosh, 10 years ago at this point in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which was a experience in a story for another day. Um, but yeah, I, I actually got into it sort of in, a, in, in the same way I got into my, my legal profession, sort of, it just sort of happened. Um, I had a lot of relationships with folks at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I'd become a lot of friends, a lot of police officers and such. And so the shop I was with, we just started representing officers. And then we started getting calls from other officers and started getting calls from the insurance that some of these officers and the, and the unions would get to represent them. And that sort of morphed into the Department of Justice asking me to handle some cases. And now I get calls um, for example, remember that, that poor woman who had mental illness who came out from Connecticut at the end of the Obama administration and tried to drive into the White House and tried to drive up in the Capitol. I represented the two Secret Service officers that um, shot and killed her when they were initially investigated. So I get calls from government agencies, DOJ, because of the conflict issue. Um, they have the defense counsel to represent them through those investigations. So I can imagine when um, public officials are accused of wrongdoing, uh, criminal wrongdoing, that being their defense counsel is not always popular. Um, has that been challenging at times? Do you, do you find 
any pressure against uh, taking on those sorts of defense? No, no. I, you know, I, I would represent anyone. Um, you know, I, I have one quote over my desk at the office back in our pre-COVID days when we all sat in desks, and um, it was from John Adams. You know, in his memoirs at the end of his life, he's always credited with saying that the most important thing that he did, the second president of the United States, the first vice president, founder from Boston, and the most important work he ever did was as a lawyer representing the British soldiers that were charged with murder for what came to be known in the revolution as the Boston Massacre, and getting those men, not not all of them acquitted, but certainly sparing them the death penalty and sending them back to England. And he thought that that was his greatest service to the country. And I have, um, from my law school days as a, as a clinical program, um, and, and frankly, some of the people that work with the U.S. Attorney's Office who just believe so strongly in, in justice and doing things the right way. I have become a real believer in our constitution in a very sort of um, fundamental way. And I think our Sixth Amendment right is one of the things that truly distinguishes us from any place else in the world. Um, so for, for viewers, viewers not well-versed, uh, explain to us our Sixth Amendment right. Um, the, the two things I think that are most important in the Sixth Amendment, I'm sure there's some constitutional scholars who watch this and say, but Mark, you missed. I think it's your right to counsel. Right. And, and that was then passed on to write to everybody to have counsel, even if you couldn't afford counsel through the, the famous Gideon case, Gideon D. Wainwright. Um, and it's also the right of confrontation. Right. The idea that you get to confront those who would make allegations against you in a public trial. And I think that is, you know, sort of next level. Um, I'll tell you two funny sort of anecdotal quirks. One is I have a dog named Gideon. And the other is that um, I'm also married to a former public defender. Um, and the other is I was in, in um, the UK just before the pandemic and we were giving a talk, one of our partners over there who does um, the same work I do, but in, on the UK side, and we're giving a talk in Scotland about sort of, you know, the differences between, when you have these parallel investigations, you have cross, you know, between the SEC and the, and the FBI and the DOJ and these different, for, and, and the Sears Fraud Office in London, and you have these cross-border or cross-ocean investigations where they're sort of working hand-in-hand. And so I was on the plane flying over and I watched this film about a whistleblower, uh, this woman that was a whistleblower with Rachel Weiss. It was a very good film, and it was about, she was a whistleblower during the whole run-up to the Iraq war. She worked for basically their CIA or NSA, the equivalent in, in the UK. And when she was caught, she was brought in, and they assigned her a lawyer for interrogation. And I remember watching this scene on the plane as we're flying across this in the middle of the night, like, I can't really sleep. And I'm watching this, and the lawyer's sitting next to her in Scotland Yard, is interrogating this woman, and the lawyer's saying nothing. She's literally just sitting there saying nothing to her while she gives this full complete confession. And I, I woke my wife up. I was like, what, what's happening here? What is, what is, what is going on? And I remember when I got to the UK and I landed and I, I was talking to some of my colleagues, I did some research on it. Like, that's what they do. They don't have this fifth amendment right, you know, of remaining silent. And the lawyer literally just sits there next to you while you give this confession. Now it's different how it can get used and what have you, but it's just what we have and what our lawyers are supposed to be doing is so different than any place else in the world. And I, I believe it with all my heart. So yeah, they're unpopular and, but I would represent all of them. So, so part of the, part of the project of tending bar is to uh, think about the values that the, that our legal system is trying to serve. 
and to uh, and to in relation to that, think about the motivations of lawyers who are serving that system. Uh, presumably, uh, with the right mindset, we're we're all supporting those values that the system we support uh, is serving. And so, um, you you just talked about the right to con- to have counsel, the right to um, confront our accusers, but. I wonder if you can, <clears throat> before we turn to our, our case uh, for today, talk to me just a little bit about our our system of jurisprudence that's based on process and what are the values that we're trying to trying to protect there. There's a, there's a lot of um, rhetoric, right? There's a lot of just sort of discussion about what it means and what it's about, and and we're constantly getting eroded because there's a it's run by human beings, right? I mean, we have these great ideals and it's like anything, whether it's our our electoral process or what we're doing as far as picking our leaders or thinking about what our policy is going to be, financial, economic, you know, all the things that we're doing, our healthcare policy. We have all these great ideals, right? And the law is supposed to have codified a lot of these ideals and the idea that a prosecutor has a fundamental difference, right, in what they do to what I do. We have the same ethical guidelines, the same rules. We're bound by the same criminal procedure. But a prosecutor, first and foremost, is supposed to do justice, right? They are not supposed to indict somebody that they don't believe that they can prove they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. They're not supposed to go forward on hunches. They're not supposed to settle political scores. They're supposed to be sort of superhuman in their ability to be objective above all else. And the reality is that's that just doesn't happen. It's a very rare human that you can meet that can do that. I've, I've met some that I think are at that level, right? That they can say, I can separate out whether or not this person is, is you know, a member of the Klan or a member of the Muslim Brotherhood or, you know, has taken a pledge to kill all Jews or blacks or any sort of horrific thing that you can think of. And Make a decision based on the law. Make a decision based on the facts. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that are running for higher office. There's politics involved. There's public outrage, right? And I, I always laugh when I see these people that are sort of, this, you, know, you, you think of them in sort of a, a left-leaning sort of liberal view. And they're like, you know, get the pitchforks, get the, get the, because it's something they believe in, right? It's like, you know, it's something that they're against. And it's very hard to block out that, that sort of background noise and focus on doing what's just and, and what's what the policy is supposed to be. And to what we're going to talk about, I think the problem is we haven't mastered yet in the criminal justice system in this country. Make no mistake. I think we have the best criminal justice system in the world, but it's by no means close to perfect. It's very so we talked We've talked about this before. So I, I think the general public doesn't think about, um, our criminal law in this in these terms, but we have a procedural justice system. Uh, if we think about, um, I'll use the term substantive justice to mean in a in a particular case whether we actually get the verdict right. You know, did the person really commit the crime or or not really commit the crime? If we get that right, that's substantive justice. But we have a procedural, not substantive justice system. That is to say, we've got a set of rules that we follow that are are designed so that on balance, most of the time, we will tend to get it substantively right. But given the, the shortcomings that you just described in human nature, 
that we acknowledge. We have put in place a set of rules that are intentionally um, slanted a little bit that, so that we have a preference. We have a preference based on our rules are expressing our preference. We would rather get it wrong and let a guilty person go free on occasion than that an innocent person should be found guilty and, and have their liberty taken or, in some cases, their life taken. Would you agree with that characterization of our procedure? I would. I would in the sense that we have gotten it right if a guilty person walks out of the courthouse acquitted, even though they, they're technically guilty. They did the thing, right? They did the thing that they're accused of. They had the criminal intent that they was required. They did it, but you couldn't prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Then procedurally, that is just, right? That is what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to you be, you can be, it's okay to be upset about it. It's okay to, as a, as a member of the jury to say, and you see these all the time, you know, I think he did it. I wasn't convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. That to me is the ultimate justice, right? That and means you've, you've gotten it right. We have, we have um, a recognition. It seems that if in a given case, a prosecutor says, you know, I'm, I'm just sure I'm confident that this particular defendant is guilty, but I don't have the evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. doubt. In that case, if the prosecutor manufactures evidence because they're just sure, you know, they, what if they're wrong? Uh, maybe they're right in that case, but if it becomes the rule that they can bend those procedures based on their inclination of who's wrong or not, uh, who's guilty or not, that we'll start to have not we'll have less and less substantive justice, and uh, because we we are the justice is the determination of the prosecutor as opposed to a jury of our peers, after a hearing and a right to confront our accusers. Right, so uh, those procedures are a lot about evidence, and about the validity of evidence, and that's going to play as it turns out uh, a big part of the case that you're going to tell us about. Yeah. I I would say this, though, Todd. I think it's important to realize that at some level, the prosecutor that has already happened. Prosecutors already have that power. When a prosecutor has a decision, because the prosecutor has the sole discretion on charging, right? And so a prosecutor can charge, and because you know, I forget the last count, there's you know, forty thousand different laws that are on the books, right? You look at this, the federal and state statutes that are available. Because a prosecutor has the ability to charge and perhaps overcharge, and make Defendants make a decision. Well, if you be guilty to this charge, you'll be a felon, but you won't go to jail. If you refuse, if you maintain your innocence, if you maintain that you didn't break the law, I'm going to indict you with somebody that has a mandatory five years, right? That happens across this country on a daily basis. Now, I, I have yet to see, in, and I'm just thinking if I've ever could even think of anybody that's close to that. I've seen some prosecutors I think are very unethical. I've seen some prosecutors I think have a a moral compass that is not tuned to true true north. I've seen prosecutors that do things that have motivations that are clearly not about doing what is right. I have never in 22 years, a couple thousand cases I've been around and I've been involved in, I've never seen a prosecutor intentionally, knowingly manufacture evidence. Right? What I think happens is and you're starting to hear more and more of these discussions from these innocence cases, right? Outcome bias, right? The need for double-blind photo arrays to avoid, you know, any in unintentional 
you know, finger on scale type of situation. I see prosecutors and, and police officers succumbing to outcome bias all the time. And what that means is they think they've got it. And so then they end up with it with a myopia of focus on what they think happened. And we all know, we all learned, in, you know, in high school or middle school, you sort of find what you're looking for. Right. And so they, they discount other evidence that would tend to exculpate a defendant. They discount witnesses and they, they, and it's not very often, I would say almost exclusively, it's not the result of, of malice. Right. I think that, you know, the prosecutors, I know some of my closest friends are prosecutors. I was going to be a prosecutor. Um, I think that they, they go into it for the right reasons. They think they're, they're fighting the good fight. They believe they're wearing the white hat, but they don't have sort of the, uh, the objectivity because they're human. Right? I guess it's and really it's important to point hard. out though, right? This is not an indictment of any particular prosecutors or prosecutors or police officers as a class no. of people. This is just no. saying they're human like the rest of us. And so they're going to they're right. see things from, from their perspective and they're going to have the shortcomings that all, all human beings do. And that's why we have to have defense counsel involved, even in unpopular cases, even where uh, the defendants are unattractive or, um, you know, or repugnant, repugnant even, um, they deserve a defense because they might be innocent. This is why I, that's right. Or, or part of my job is just a defender of the constitution, right? Part of what I see myself doing is if I have somebody to like, how could you defend that person? I'm like, look around, that person is you and me, right? I mean, it's a, some, most often it's a split second decision. It's a, it's a, it's a series of this, of life events that occur to somebody that get them addicted to drugs or mental health issues or, or be desperate enough to, to, to do these things. Right. Very rarely do people of, of, of reasonable sanity without any other, any other sort of impacts on the outside force them go to a life of crime. It's a very small percentage of these quote bad people. Right. It there's, there's, there's often a lot of explanations for what that happens. And, in those moments, sometimes my job is simply to try to find a way to mitigate it, to bring forward this, this mitigation to show the prosecutor, the jury, why this is situational and not sort of a, a, a core value or lack of values of that person. I also think that what happens is that if you, if you make the assumption that all the evidence, all the things your eyes and your brain are telling you are true, and that person's not worthy of defense, isn't that that first step off the ledge of denying due process to everyone, right? Because the, the, the innocence cases, and I want to talk about one in a second, we're breaking the record every single year. I mean, you've, you've recommended this movie, which I think everyone should see. There's a couple of wonderful books out there. One, my favorite is Picking Cotton, the story of Ronald Cotton and his false identification as a, and then later exoneration by DNA after 20 some years of rape he didn't commit. Um, there's a new Netflix special that just dropped last week called The Innocence Files. Um, I'm only about halfway through, but I can say episode eight is my buddy Brian, who got a guy off death row for a crime he didn't commit. And there was a certainty of everybody in that case that they thought that person was guilty. And why would he get it? Why would he need a defense? Why would he need a defense? And that's all the way up until you say, oh, shoot, because he's actually not guilty. He's actually innocent. Right. And, and that process has to play itself out. So the, the joke I always make when people come to me and they're like, 
you know, embarrassed or uncomfortable about what they're accused of and what they've done. I say, look, it took me a long time to come up with this and it's, it's crazy. And you may not want to put this on, on online, but if you were to kidnap, rape, kill, and eat little children and then walk around wearing their skin, what's the most horrific thing I ever imagined? It took me some time to really think of what's the most horrific thing. I would still represent you. I would still represent you, not because I think that you doing that, you should be acquitted or be back on the street, but I think you have an absolute right in our system to due process and a right to effective advocacy, and the government has to prove the case. Because the minute the government stops having to prove their case, we are right back to where we were with the king, which is why we have these 10 amendments to begin with. These are the, these are the rights the king wasn't giving us. And, and by... And by de- providing that defense in the individual case, you're also preserving the system so that we, we aren't changed by the fact that the crime has occurred, that we, we stay true to our values and continue to, to um, ensure that, that we are the kind of society that we want to be. Uh, we're talking in the abstract, but, I, but I'm hoping that we can um, think about all those things as we, as we hear this really wonderful story um, uh, starts starts off with a you know sort of dark side, but it has a happy ending, um, currently at least. <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping you'll tell yeah. us a little bit about um, about this case that you've been involved in. Tell tell us a bit about uh, what's happened and how you came to be involved with it. So in 2000, I was just trying to figure it out the other day. In 2012 or 13, I think it was late. 2012, I got a phone call from the um, director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. And she called me and she said, Mark, I've got a case. I need you to take it. And the client's innocent. And I said, well, you're the Innocence Project. What do you need me for? And she said, well, we can't. It's not a case we can take because they really have to focus on cases of exonerations. They need to be able to prove innocence because as we're talking about, there's a lot of people out there that don't believe it. They think these people are walking off of death row and out of lifetimes of prison because of some lawyer tricks or some, you know, some gamesmanship or something. When in fact, they're being exonerated. New technology is coming along. Um, old technology is being debunked for what it was, you know, like bike technology and you know, you're getting DNA prevalent. And so they really focus their very limited resources of the Middle Atlantic Innocence Project on the cases where they can do that, where they can show definitively with scientific evidence the innocence of the person and this case just wasn't a dna case it was a it was a series of other things and i said i had no time to to do it i do a fair amount of pro bono but i knew this was a huge sort of undertaking and i had just come out of a couple big cases and i I just wasn't in a position to do it she said just agree to read the trial transcript so i did i read the trial transcript and when you read a trial transcript you realize you can do a better job cold than the lawyer was doing who had that case for months preparing it it sort of starts getting your juices going and i realized i, I had and my client actually pointed out the other day the first two years i had this case i never referred to him as innocent i always referred to him as not guilty because i was a hundred percent convinced very early on that he had been denied due process that the the system the the, the process had failed him in every regard the police investigation the the conduct of the, of the prosecutors, the conduct of the judge, the conduct of his own lawyer, the appellate process, which I always feel, and I think anybody would agree, is more focused on finality than on getting it right. And it was clear to me he was not guilty in that regard. And at a minimum, he should get a new trial. And now I sit here 
seven plus years later. Um, and uh, I'll sort of jump to the spoiler, which is he walked out of the maximum security prison in Cumberland, Maryland, uh, last Wednesday, at 208. And he's the first person to ever walk out of that prison directly. So, uh, so tell us your client, client's open. name. Um, I, I think it, we, 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 Matt uh, Horner. might've, um, had a glitch there in the audio. Tell us again. Yeah, Matt Horner. Matt Horner. And, and Mr. Horner was was accused and then convicted of, of what crimes? So Matt was Matt had um, a wife um, who has a series of other um, sort of issues, and she had uh, the relationship had, had fallen apart such that he wanted a divorce, and she was going to be out because they were living in his father's home, and he had taken up with another woman. And she made a false allegation against him of domestic violence. And then following that, when he got released, um, she came up out of the basement. He didn't go back to the house, um, which we've been able to show. We'll talk about in a second. But she came up out of the basement wearing a white bathrobe. Her hair was wet. She had a, a, a towel some kind of around her neck and talked to Matt's father and stepmother and was not really making sense. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And it turned out, um, when she got into the ambulance, the EMTs, they called the ambulance and the EMT said, to him, you know, what happened? And she said, she made the, like a gun sign. And the EMT looked and sure enough, she had an entry wound in her, in her chin, went up through the floor of her mouth, through her tongue, through her palate, through her, and came out in her forehead. And they had no idea. She, nobody issued a shot. They figured out because she didn't present, she wasn't covered with blood. Um, and then the EMT asked her, did your husband do this to you? She shook her head down. Later at the hospital, after some interviewing by the detective, uh, in writing, because she was slipping in out of consciousness, it was all hooked up with tubes and such. And we actually have the notes where she said initially, did your husband do this? Who did this to you? And she shrugged. And the detective said, I think your husband did this to you, which is a completely reasonable assumption and, and with a, with a alleged history of domestic violence. And she then agreed. And that was the only path they pursued. They found the, the scene in the basement was covered with blood. Her bloody clothes were all over the floor. Um, she had clearly, and nobody uh, contradicts that she had changed her own clothes, cleaned herself up. She'd smoked a cigarette. There was a blood cigarette in the ashtray. Yep. And it became a, she became a celebrity in Baltimore with the House of Ruth and um, the, all the domestic violence groups, some of whom I've actually worked with representing actual victims of domestic violence. And she then went to trial and testified that Matt had gotten released from jail, come to the house, come into the basement, shot her, changed his clothes, and then left. Um, and with no real explanation of how she, or how or why she got cleaned up or the gun got put away or she had the shell casing in her purse or denied to the EMT that, that this has happened. And the things that her lawyer didn't do would take an hour to explain, but he was brand new. Uh, it was his first trial. Didn't do any investigation. Didn't interview any witnesses. Didn't talk to the experts. It was horrific. It was just horrific. And um, what we were able to show with his original post-conviction counsel was that there's documentation. He got released just before 7 a.m. from this allegation of domestic violence that she made. And his father picked him up, drove him home. It's about two miles. And at 7.02 a.m., he called his girlfriend and said, I'm in the car, I'm on my way there. And there's an eyewitness from next door who was found who said, I saw them back into the driveway, him get out of his father's car, 
get into his truck to drive away, which comports with the 702 call. Pops, uh, the father said he came in the house and she came upstairs. And at 708, Pops' wife called the EMTs. So the government would have you believe that he got released from jail slightly before 7 a.m., drove home like Mario Andretti, ran into the house, shot her, ran out of the house, got in the car, drove away. The neighbor's lying. Um, and she was able to regain consciousness, get up, change off all her bloody clothes, quell the bleeding from the two entry and exit wounds, um, clean herself up, put on a white robe, smoke a cigarette, and come upstairs all in about eight minutes. And what we've been able to do is go after them on a broad procedural grounds. Uh, and the court, the chief judge in Baltimore vacated the conviction on February the 5th. Uh, on the basis that it was an unconstitutional waiver of Matt's right to a jury trial. Um, I think that his lawyer was a little bit afraid of a jury trial. He'd never tried a case and told Matt, my dad helped this guy get elected. He'll be good for us. Um, and I think also the other part was the jailhouse informant that testified falsely. That so going we to that, so at the trial, another inmate testified. How would, how would he have testified? What was the substance of his testimony? So Matt was held pre-trial. Uh, he originally cut out, but then his wife, he was stalking her. Uh, we know it was false because A, she was in hiding with House of Ruth, and B, he was allegedly stalking her in a car that had already, unbeknownst to her, been returned to the dealership. Um, so they didn't even have access to the car. He was allegedly driving around stalking her. So while he's sitting in jail, as most people do on a case like this, awaiting trial, you know, innocent, pending trial, he was locked up with a guy named Richard Schaefer. And Richard, turns out, had a 25-plus year history as a paid confidential informant of the Baltimore City and Baltimore County Police Department. He was pending sentencing. He'd just been convicted. Um, he was looking at a mandatory 10 years with guidelines of 20 years. And he went to the police, his handler, who'd gotten him out of jams for all those years before, said, Matt admitted all these things to me. And here are the notes I took when Matt was locked up. We were talking in the jail. And he testified that out of the goodness of his heart, he was going to testify and tell the truth that Matt had shot and killed his wife, or shot and tried to kill his wife. And there's a couple of interesting parts about that. One is that he made a number of other allegations against Matt that were all demonstrably false. So that Matt killed his first wife by shooting her. And we have the document. In fact, the detective at the post-conviction hearing had it in his actual file. I got that from him during the post-conviction hearing just a couple of years ago, um, showing that Matt's first wife died of a drug overdose. So there's all these demonstrably false facts that Matt allegedly admitted to that nobody pursued. The government didn't pursue. They didn't turn him over. And his defense counsel never pursued. And then the other part was he said, I'm doing this out of goodness my heart. I'm facing mandatory 10 years. And two weeks after his testimony, he walked out, time served, 11 months. Benefit of having testified against Matt. So that's the case as you found it. And uh, you were able to obtain... Uh, exculpatory evidence in several forms, including the neighbor's testimony about his departure before entering the house. But importantly, you also were able to get the testimony of that prior witness, the former inmate, and of the ex-wife. Can you tell us about that? So the reason that this case came to me was this is sort of what I call a shoe leather case. This wasn't going to be a case that you're going to win with. Um, no, get me wrong. There was from a lot of drafting, a lot of, a lot of 
pretty voluminous motions were filed both in the federal court and we had to go back to the state court uh, and they come back to federal court again before we got the the conviction vacated um and i just point out that the state has noticed an appeal um but through the attorney general's office they have agreed they are going to reinvestigate this case which is a tremendous concession um they are going to look into this they have fought us tooth and nail for the past seven years, and they fought Matt for the entire 15 years he's been incarcerated against a new trial. Um, both of the, of the prosecutors are now state court judges, and I think that is this is a this has a lot of repercussions. You know, some of the things that came out, but um, we were able to get this case reversed on two grounds, um, and there's a third ground that's hanging out there. The first was the waiver the waiver issue on, the, on his constitutional right to a jury. And the judge found, I think very rightly, based on Supreme Court precedent, that was not a knowing and voluntary waiver. And so that was ground number one. And, and that was just sort of the legal arguments on the record. Grounds number two were all of the myriad ways that there were violations of Brady. And Brady is, for those that don't know, Brady versus Maryland, which is probably the seminal case of criminal justice in the 60s, which says the court mandates that the government must turn over to the defense any evidence that is potentially exculpatory and they must do so in such a way that the defense can make use of it it's not a, a timeline but they have to turn it over for trial so you have to have known when this detective went out and found that when richard schaefer said that killed his first wife by shooting her and the detective went and found her autopsy report right and, and obtained that had it in his file, he should have given that to the prosecutor. The prosecutor should have given it to the defense because the defense can say, but Mr. Schaefer, you lied. He didn't admit to you to that because that's not even how she died. And there's all these various aspects of that. Um, and so the court overturned it on the, the, the conviction on, on those two grounds, the waiver of the jury trial and all of these Brady issues, some of which relate to Schaefer, some of which relate to Lorraine, the ex-wife. And then they've held sort of off to the side, this ineffective claim. They said, I'm not going to even reach it. It's a moot. I've already vacated the conviction. If the Fourth Circuit disagrees with me, I'll rule on it at that point. And that's sort of where we are procedurally. And factually, the running it down was you just had to, to start digging. And so, you know, I, we found Richard Schaefer by finding his girlfriend at the time, who led us to his current girlfriend, who led us to Richard, who then recanted and probably one of the most that's interesting the, that's the moments inmate of my career against him. he confronted me in the parking lot and he recanted his testimony <laughs> that's the stretch correct he did we uh took some some multiple discussions and he tried to get some money out of us he tried to get me to represent him in his art his current legal woes and, you know i i only meet with him with the retired fbi agent that i use um so i never had any one-on-one -on -one meetings with him so i can't give you anything of benefit you just have to do the right thing because the right thing and ultimately, he sat down with me, we sat outdoors in the parking lot, and I had my computer, and I read him every line of his transcript from the trial testimony. And each line, I'd say, is that true? And he'd say, yes or no. Well, what's not true about it? And he would admit to all of it. And then we wrote up with his um, assistance uh, an affidavit, and we went to a little printing shop around the corner that he knew the guy. We printed it off, and he got three notarized copies, walked out and said, I feel the weight off. I feel I feel the weight off. I've always felt bad about this. Now he ultimately recanted that recantation. He's still on probation for the original charge, and the state's attorney's office leaned on him pretty hard. Um, and he's actually since passed away. But it was crystal clear to the to the federal judge, chief judge, that what was going on with this guy. Um, 
And I subsequently went and found Rick's ex-wife and some other people in Rick's life to bolster the veracity of what he said in the recantation and, and to lay out the entirety of, of all the cooperation he'd done for all these years and all the things that he had not been turned over to the defense that should have been. Um, and with Lorraine, I just Lorraine flew to Utah. Is, I got in the plane. And I flew ex-wife. to Utah. Yeah. The ex-wife. Is she fully recovered from yeah, her Lorraine, Lorraine, Lorraine Smith now. Um, she's had about 34 surgeries since, since October of 2005. And the most recent was about a year ago. And she finally had her, um, left eye removed, um, because she'd had so many problems and with she's that. Now resident track Utah and, you, and you went to meet with her. Um, yep. She's originally from Utah. She, she had left her second husband or her third husband, second husband and moved to Baltimore where she met somebody online. And when that didn't work out, that's when she met Matt, and they got married pretty quickly. Following all of this, she moved back home to Utah, uh, ended up in the house that had been owned by her parents, and that's where she lives. And you know, we just went and knocked on her door, handed my business card, told her who I was, and why I wanted to talk to her. And remarkably, she invited us in. We sat with her for a couple hours. Um, she admitted to some stuff, but she was very. Um, she's an interesting character. Uh, let's just say that. You know, I, I have since been to Ireland to interview her estranged daughter because she said some things about her grandson whose picture was on the bookshelf and I just, they didn't ring true to me. So I went and found her daughter and interviewed her. And her daughter agreed to read the transcript and uh, took some cajoling because I didn't have any power over her in Ireland. Um, but she finally called me. She said, yeah, I'll help you because I read the trial transcript and my mother lied about everything in that transcript except her name. I mean, she claims that she graduated from the University of Utah and she never graduated from high school. I mean, she lied about things she didn't even have to lie about. Um, and Lorraine's uh, second husband, Michael, with whom she'd been with, you know, 15 or so years, um, he met, ultimately met with me and agreed to give me some information, like about how the time she faked having breast cancer to get a boob job, um, to get a, a breast augmentation. I mean, just some pretty amazing things. I mean, Lorraine is still to this day. She's stolen her daughter's identity and opened two credit accounts and bought an HVAC system at her home using her daughter in Ireland's identity, even though they haven't spoken in years. So um, on my second visit to see Lorraine, she admitted to a lot of things. Um, She, she's a very smart woman. She's very smart, very cunning. Um, And I think she's not, not well. She's very sad. Um, We were able to document there's at least eight prior suicide attempts admittedly not with a handgun, the facts of that night are such and the, and the scene and everybody I've shown it to, even the EMT who never saw the basement. When I showed her, when I went out and interviewed her, she said, Oh my gosh, that's a suicide scene. I mean, there's all these, these, you know, holiday cards and birthday cards, I love you cards between her and Matt. We know at nine o'clock night, um, that night she called her ex sister-in-law who said, I can't talk to you. You're too high. Brain finally admitted to being uh, an addict, a pill addict. Um, so she admitted everything. And then after we came back to DC, she reached back out to me and sent me an email and said, she thinks Matt should get a new trial. And she ultimately signed an affidavit while I was here. I wasn't even in Utah. Um, it was 3000 miles away. She signed and notarized an affidavit where she admitted to everything but pulling the trigger. And that's what we took to the state court. And it took us a few years because you got to go back and 
we litigate all of that in state court and go through the state appellate procedure to exhaust. And then we got back to the federal judge last August. And in February, he vacated the conviction. Let's uh, talk for a moment about your client. What What's in store for him after serving? He, he had been he had been sentenced to a life sentence for the attempted murder and concurrent sentences for the crime with a handgun and um, and yeah he got, he got life plus a concurrent twenty years for the underlying and he had, initial he had by this time, it, by the time he was released uh, now just a few days ago. He'd been serving serving now for six, seven years. Is that right? How long? No, almost 15. Uh, almost, almost 15. He's been in since um, October of 05. So it's so been 15 years in October. Man, years in prison. Um, how old is he now as he gets out of prison? Mm-hmm. So he's born 19, I think he's 66. So what's, what's so in like store 54? for for wrongfully convicted, now released 60-some-odd-year-old. So this is the problem, right? We, we don't have, we're not really there yet, right? The, the system, as I said earlier, is about finality, not getting it right. And you have many, many cases. I mean, the average, and I'm sort of freewheeling on the numbers here, but I think the average time between exoneration and release is something in the neighborhood of two to three years. So we know people are innocent. They're sitting in jail. DNA has exonerated them, excluded them from the alleged rape. It was a single person rape. It matches somebody else who's got multiple rape convictions, right? And it still takes almost two years or more to get that person out of a cage, right? Because the system is so focused on finality. So I think there's there's two things that are happening. One is Matt's sort of got to figure out how to reintegrate himself into into life, right? He when he went to jail, as he tells me, there were no smartphones, right? There was no there were no iPads. There was um, very very limited, you know, dial up AOL, you know that internet, you know. Um, he's learning all that stuff pretty quickly. He's living in um, a house with a friend and her husband. And they've set him up with a with a computer and a, and a phone and a bank account, and um, he's right now in home detention, as we all are for pandemic. But while we factor in this reinvestigation and what's happening with the appeal, um, so he's he's getting sort of a, a slow reintegration into society in that way. Um, they're building a, a big um, garage behind the house where he's staying, and he's a carpenter by trade. So he's gonna he's gonna be outside in the fresh air eating home cooked meals and 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 doing some some carpentry for the next few weeks. Um, I think if this goes the way it should and the reinvestigation comes to the only legitimate conclusion, which is he had nothing to do with this. This is self inflicted. Forensics make that clear. The timeline makes that clear. I mean, he essentially has an alibi, being in jail, being processed for the initial false allegation of domestic assault, right? And I, I say it's domestic because there's, there's no evidence to support it. He's always denied it. And they lived in the house with his father and stepmother who testified on the record at the time. There's never any domestic violence between them. And she then went and filed a, an order to try to be kept from throwing, being thrown out of the house as all sort of the, the hallmarks of a false domestic violence allegation. Um, and certainly in light of the fact that she falsely accused him of this shooting. Um, so he's got essentially an alibi of being in police custody at the time she was shot. 
because the forensics say she had to have been shot at least an hour before 7.08, and he didn't get released, according to police, until just before 7 o'clock. So, you know, and that's still not released, doesn't get him home, and then it totally discounts the, na- the neighbor who said, you know, whether it was 6.58 or 7.01, she said he never went in the house. That's the sort of salient fact. So if they reach the right conclusion and they would draw their appeal, because I don't think they would win the appeal anyway. It's a super well-written opinion. Um, if they would draw their appeal and the state says we're not going forward, the case will be dismissed. The next step is a um, petition for writ of actual innocence um, to the governor, which I have a high-level confidence that we would be able to obtain. Um, and then he would become eligible for payment. Maryland is one of the more progressive states that has a fund. And it, it pays. I think the last one they just authorized was for four exonerees uh, a few months ago. And it was about, it worked out about $78,000 per year. So he gets, he gets a payment about a little over a million dollars. Um, and let me make this clear. So everybody's pay attention. We're not making a penny. This is a complete pro bono case. If Matt gets a hundred million dollars, I'm not taking a yeah. beer from him. Right. I'm just, it's just amazing. This is all goes yeah. to him. Yeah. But he'll, he'll be eligible. So um, if they fight the appeal, um, depends, right? If they fight the appeal and they win the Fourth Circuit, we can go to the Supreme Court. Probably the only Supreme Court worthy issue is this jury waiver. Um, or we could go back to the district court, and the district court could then rule, as he's, the judge made clear, on the ineffective claim. And then they, they may go back to the Fourth Circuit. And then ultimately, when the appeals are done, assuming that it's not done by being dropped, the state has the right to retry it. Which seems unlikely, though, at this and point, given, given the and I, all the evidence that you've been able to present. Well, the snitch is dead. That's right. I mean, the snitch is dead. The um, the jailhouse snitch is dead. The complainant, you know, Lorraine, not only gave us an affidavit, she then gave a second affidavit that the state wrote for her. And on the witness stand, she disavowed pieces of that. For example, the state wrote in her affidavit. I have no um, substance yeah. abuse issues, no no pill addiction, and I got her to understand. And she said, "No, I'm yeah. I'm, a, I'm a pill head." She admitted it. So even the the second affidavit. So she's completely incredible, and there's no physical evidence that connects right. him to the case. Well, Mark, uh, you know I appreciate you sharing the story with us today, and uh, wish your client uh, a lot of luck, uh, you know, and the right outcome. Uh, you know, borrowing on the terms we were using earlier, this is a case where our procedural system did not come out with the right substantive result uh, initially and is winding around towards that now. He's, he's out of jail, but he's still not out of jeopardy, it seems. Hopefully that works out right. It seems as though it will, but he can never get those years back. Even a, even slightly more than a million dollars, as you described, there is no compensation for all of that time. And for a person who's been out of society since before there were smartphones to be introduced today, what, a, what an uphill climb it seems we've, we've placed on this man. I was thinking of the, of the Just Mercy uh, movie. There's, there's a, a moment in there when they describe for us, or maybe it's notes uh, that are provided towards the end of the movie. That for all the persons that we have executed in American history, we've now found, for, for every 10, 9 to 10 that we've executed, we've now found a person who is actually innocent. So that not only are we taking liberty, but we are in, in cases taking lives and almost assuredly of innocent persons. Um, it all, all 
all because good people are working hard to convict wrongdoers, and yet because we're human, we sometimes get it wrong. And all that highlights the, the great importance of the kind of work that you do in persons uh, like you do to, uh, to keep our system honest and, and keep the procedure just. Um, I, I wonder, do you have any parting words for us as we, uh, as we sort of wrap up here? No. No, I think I would say it's, it, it's um, I think it's really, you're, you're right in some regards. It's, a, it's about really good defense counsel and the adversarial system is premised on this idea of some sort of a equipoise between the two sides, which it's not, right? The, the defense counsel never, I mean, even Bill Gates couldn't stand up to the power of the federal government, right? No, no individual can stand up to the power of the government. So it's never going to be quite equal. But I think what we're seeing, and I'm very happy about, is a a movement, um, uh, an awake. It's called an awakening of the American populace. Right? Serial was the most widely listened to podcast in American history. It's the most widely um, listened to radio podcast in history. Right? That's that's amazing about the Aned Syed um, defendant from Baltimore. You know, who was convicted and sentenced to life for murder, um, and who incidentally had a cell couple down from Matt uh, at the at the North Branch facility. Um, and you've got this the Innocence Files, Netflix is number one right now, trending across America on Netflix. And you've got you know, the Just Mercy, and you've got these you know Pulitzer Prize winning books. And CNN lead story I saw today was about a guy exonerated, the longest um, serving innocent man 48 years who was exonerated there was an amazing article a couple years ago about a gentleman who was executed in texas um for allegedly uh setting a fire that killed his family and the evidence in that seemed to be overwhelming that it was a accidental fire he had nothing to do with it and if you read that article and you're not angry you're not reading it correctly um and i think as people are starting to realize and you're starting to see it make its way into popular culture and into movies, whether it's Denzel Washington playing the hurricane, right? You know, this has always been an issue. I mean, Dylan's song, the hurricanes from the sixties. We've always known this was a problem, particularly in the minority communities and the, and the underrepresented communities and the, and the, the people at, at real disadvantages. And now we're starting to see mainstream acceptance of the idea that even good people, the people that we like that are prosecutors and police officers and judges, they make terrible mistakes. And judges get on the bench often because of political considerations, not because of competence. And so all of these things together can create a perfect storm where innocent people can be accused and can be presented. And so now you're finding witnesses that are being more careful if they're not involved in the case, they're not getting a benefit to say, well, maybe I saw that, maybe I'm not so sure, and understand the inherent unreliability of eyewitness testimony, particularly cross-racial. Um, you're seeing jurors, right? You're seeing interviews with jurors. I just watched one the other day on something, and it was talking about jurors. They're like, well, you know, we sound sure we really thought he did it, but man, there were some holes in that case, and they understand reasonable doubt. And I think the more... You, you would have thought Kill a Mockingbird would be enough, but you have to make it more personal. And for most people, particularly in the last 20 years, trying to identify with an uneducated African-American living in a Jim Crow South, right? It's really hard to, to make that identity leap, right? As much as lawyers, we all love Atticus Finch and Scout and the story of Harper Lee, 
it's really hard to, to, to make that connection. And so the more and more that we're getting out there and the more and more that we're getting people to see what really is happening and see how the sausage is made, the more we're holding the government as a, as a society to their burden. And I haven't seen very many guilty people walk free when the power of the government comes after them. It's just, it's very, very rare. It's extremely rare. But the number of people that I have seen that are innocent or grossly overcharged is too many to count. So I think to the extent that people are watching this and there's a message, we got to keep getting this message out. We got to keep talking about these exonerations. We got to keep reading these books. We got to keep looking. We have to continue every day, like all of us do, whatever our chosen profession is, to think, what do I do to make this better? Conviction integrity units in, in prosecutor's offices are a great idea. Every, every single one should have one, right? We need to have that, that other voice. And I think, I think we're trending in the right direction. We've got a long way to well, go. Uh, well, Mark, thank, thanks for your story, for your great work, for your service to the profession. And I want to thank you for that. Maybe if I could ask you just to, just to wrap up. Before we started rolling tape, you read for me a quote coincidentally from Atticus Finch. Do you have that with you? Mm -hmm. Can you share it with us? <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. I had uh, sent a little note with a photo of, to all my team members. And there's about 19 people um, that were actively involved in, in this case to, to get Matt to that day. And I sent him a little note, which I will keep for myself. Um, but in the bottom of the note, I put a quote um, to send that I put on the frames for everybody that was involved. And the quote is from To Kill a Mockingbird. I wanted you to see what real courage is instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand. It's when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. You rarely win, but sometimes you do. And that was Atticus to his daughter. Scott. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for being with us today. And thank you for being with us today on Tending Bar. I hope you found that story as inspiring as I did. Uh, certainly grateful to Mark for his terrific work. We wish the best for his client. I hope you'll join us back here next time as we continue talking about uh, the purposes and higher calling of the legal profession. And for all of us who are, are trying to serve the public interest and the greater good, join us again as we tend bar together. Thanks. Hey. I, I didn't never thought this day would happen, guys. Man, I want to say thank you so much. You'll never know what you've done. Welcome home, buddy. Mm -hmm.